this is today. Um, we only considered the first three verses last week. I'm not going to read it all right now. We're going to walk through it later on. Uh, I hope this does not offend any Reformed sensibilities. Uh, it is traditional to read the Word of God first, but since the text is lengthy, we're going to read through it once we get into the message. Allow me to pray before I begin. Uh, we will be looking at creation, we will be looking at utility, and we will be looking at harmony as our main points this morning. Father in heaven, we ask for your guidance and your help as we look at this extensive passage. Time could be spent hours and hours in studying this first chapter. But Lord, let us get the basics here and may it help us and encourage us. May it equip us with some knowledge and understanding about why we are here and what you have done. And it is all for your own glory. We ask this humbly in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if any of you had have, probably have, several of you probably have had the experience of being on a Zoom meeting where you open up your computer and you log into a website and you get a bunch of people and you're able to see everyone's face that is in the virtual room and you get to talk freely as though you were in the same place, although you're miles apart. Kind of odd that I would start this way. I have a silly reason to say something like about it because I remember when I started, you know, I'd see my own face up there and I wouldn't look at it very much. And then I finally realized, oh my goodness, I resemble Charles Darwin too much. So from that time on, I just kept my, I clicked my video camera off so it just says my name up there. Some of us are familiar with Charles Darwin. <coughs> he published a book along with Alfred Russell Wallace back in 1859. Most of, us, uh, most of us know it as Origin of the Species, but the incomplete title of the book, listen carefully, the complete title of the book, Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection on the Preservation of the Favored Races for the Preservation of, the, of Life. <clears throat> it is tragic that the scientific world accepts this theory as proven fact. It is but a theory, and it is not proven. We could talk, I could lecture, I don't know that I would bring a sermon, I could lecture for a couple of hours just on his stuff, his foolishness. But let me just bring into a point, a couple of points. There are many problems with Darwin and his theories, but if you want to accept Darwin theology or Darwin evolution, Darwin theology, Darwin evolution as fact, 
please be very aware you may not know what you're affirming. You may not know what you're supporting. You might think I'm just spouting sour grapes, but Darwin was a racist. He's written it in his books, The Origin of the Species and the Descent of Man. The late Jay Gould, who was an atheist, a Marxist, and a naturalist, wrote about this very fact that biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859. That's when Darwin was first published. But they increased by magnitude following the acceptance of the evolutionary theory. What Darwin did with his writing made the world worse. It didn't give us any more understanding. It didn't give us any more light. It does not give us any more help. Darwin argued that people with light skin are bigger brained and smaller jawed. Quoting Darwin himself, at some future period not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races. Another contemporary of, Thomas, of uh, Darwin was a man by the name of Thomas Huxley. He was nicknamed Darwin's Bulldog. He wrote, no rational man cognizant of the facts believes that the average Negro is the equal, still less the superior of the white man. publishing of Origin of the Species and the following book, The Descent of Man, gave birth to the eugenics movements and resulted in less than 100 years later in the Holocaust. Adolf Hitler was profoundly influenced by Darwin's writings. But Darwin is still considered a brilliant hero in scientific circles. In contrast, this morning, we are here to defend Holy Scripture as it, and its account of creation. There's a great debate about how everything came to be, even in Christian circles, among theologians and seminaries and Christian colleges. Evolution describes the development of things that are, by a process, that consume billions of years. Evolution describes the development of things that are by process consuming billions of years. And depends on who you talk to. They don't know how many billions of years. I read one, one account who said it's at least 4.6 billion years. And I read another account that said 20 billion years would not be enough to justify our understanding of evolution. It would take longer than that. So it all depends on who you talk to. That's why it is a theory, it is not a fact. Nothing is proven. Now while evolution describes the development of everything that we see, and it comes about over billions of years from chance, we look at scripture. 
Bible describes creation within six days. Both the evolutionists and the creationists look at the same evidence and they perceive from the same evidence different conclusions. Evolution denies God, depends on science, and I deliberately use the air quotes, depends on science, and then throws in a lot of chance. For example, most of you who remember your high school science remember that there are two very important laws of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics states that energy cannot be created or destroyed, but can only be transformed from one form to another. To illustrate that point, you've got an automobile, you've got an engine up front. And you've got, I'm the old-timey kind, you've got the wheels in the back. I like my mercury. Got the wheels in the back. That engine produces energy to drive the transmission, to drive the drive, to spin the drive shaft, to drive the differential. By the time it dispenses, it, it generates so much energy through internal combustion and sends it down that drivetrain to the rear wheels. But what we don't realize, the same energy that reaches that rear wheel is not the same energy that begins in the engine. It's losing energy. Everything that's used to move all the way is expelling energy. That kind of illustrates the first law of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be created or destroyed, but can only be transformed from one form to another. Energy is being transformed from the engine to the wheels. And then along the way, it's demonstrating the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is moving toward entropy or everything is winding down. Second law of thermodynamics states that the in, that the entropy of an isolated system always increases. Entropy is winding down or decaying or slowing down. That's illustrated by that engine-to-wheel energy transfer. Limiting the amount of useful work to be that can be done with energy. If you look at evolution, they're going to contend that everything is improving and, and the energy that brings about life is going to improve and change and advance. But everything in nature is dying and in decay and in decline. Everything rots. Everything gets old. Everything gets sick. So evolution denies the first and second law of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be transformed from one form to another. And when it is transformed from one form to another, it loses some in the process. That trans that the traveling from one form to another uses energy as it goes. So everything is in decline, everything is decay, everything is slowing down, even this universe. Is it possible to derive everything we see and know from an ancient puddle of primordial soup?
that's the idea that the evolutionist has. Everything began from a single cell in some primordial ooze billions and billions and billions of years from somewhere on this earth and it grew into a single cell animal which grew into another critter on the way and finally had fins and swam around like a fish and the fish decided to have feet to walk up on land and the process just continues. If you're going to, that's, that's just life. It doesn't account, they have to account for food and vegetation as well. Dr. Jason Lyle, who was with a research, with Bible Research Institute, I think that's what it's called, was criticized one time because they thought he was mocking the evolutionists because he said in one of his speeches that the evolutionist believes that we are as closely akin to broccoli as we are to each other. That's what they believe. If we come from a single cell, if all life comes from a single cell, then that's got to be true. Is it possible to derive everything we see and know from an ancient puddle of primordial ooze, or was this world and universe created supernaturally by God? Some of you may have heard of, you may follow Frank Turek. He's an apologist, apologeticist for Christianity and the Bible. Years ago, before Christ Christopher Hitchens' death, he had the opportunity to debate him. And he offered Hitchens some, I'm not going to go into the details, I don't have time, but he offered him five points of evidence with written justification, with written information, with data that point to the defining beginning of space and time continuum. When did all of this begin? He said, it all points to the fact that the universe began from literally nothing, nothing physical or nothing temporal. Quoting Turek, he said, once there was no time, no space, and no matter. There was nothing. And then it all banged into existence out of nothing with great precision. The evidence led astronomer Dr. Robert Jastrow, who until, recent his, until his recent death was the director of Mount Wilson Observatory, once led by Edwin Hubble to author the book called God and the Astronomers. Now, Dr. Jastrow, was, from the first line of his first chapter of this book, he writes that he has personally, that he was personally agnostic about religious matters. He doesn't know if God exists. He doesn't know if he doesn't. He's just looking at the data. He's just looking at the science. Quoting Jastrow, we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world 
The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading up to man commenced suddenly and sharply at the definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Now this is something that's coming from an unbeliever. Again, in an interview, Jasper went on further, admitting that astronomers, quoting, astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. They have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work. I think now that is a scientifically proven fact. End quote. That means that the cause of the universe must be something beyond nature, something we would call supernatural, or something that we as believers call God. It also means that this supernatural cause of the universe must at least be spaceless because this supernatural force created space. It must be timeless because this supernatural force created time. It must be immaterial because it created matter. It must be powerful because it created out of nothing. It must be intelligent because this creation event and the universe was precisely designed. And this supernatural cause must be personal because it made a choice to convert a state of nothing into something. And personal forces don't make choices. So I've given you some support as way of introduction about this argument. Did we evolve or was there a creation? It was over billions of time or was it quick and, quick and swift? Let us look at creation, let us look at utility, and let us look at harmony in Scripture. Among creation, or the, uh, the debate of creation, even among Christians, and again, I could go into the history of this and back to the Scopes trial of, in 1825, and that was a big produced planned, scripted farce of a trial. But even since then, creation and those in Christianity accept and receive differing views. While the evidence suggests, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the scientists look at the evidence and the creation looks at the evidence and it looks like everything is old or ancient. Billions and billions of years old. We can very easily answer that 
probably too simply by just saying that God created all things in such a way that everything functioned as it should. Or we could say, putting it another way, he gave everything an appearance of age. Adam and Eve were not created as children. They were created as grown adults. But among these differing views of creation, there is this theistic evolution idea, believes that science, believes the science of unbelievers and compromises. Oh, well, they must be right. They're scientists. They've been to school. They've been to, they've got master's degrees. They've got doctor's degrees. So they're more smarter than the country bumpkin in the pew. So they must be right. They use science to interpret the idea that God helped it along. That's where the theistic evolution compromises with the scientists. God helped it along over long expanse of time. And there is the day-age theory. It is an analogical day or a symbolic sort of day. According to the analogical day, the six-day creation Reference to Genesis 1 refer to God's creative work, God's creative work days, which are analogous to, but not necessarily identical to, the work days of man. This was done to set a pattern for man's work and rest cycle in which man was to work six days and then rest on the seventh day. Most analogical day creationists propose the days in Genesis 1 are broadly consecutive and that the days are successful periods of unspecified length. However, parts of the creation days may overlap and or the works within the creation days may be grouped in a topical fashion. That's according to factsandfaith.com. I know some of you are about to go to sleep. This does get to be kind of tedious and boring. But we see again and again and again a lot of Christians, even theologians, even denominations, caving to the evolutionary sciences. They're intimidated. And they should not be. We should not be. There is also the gap theory. Some suggest that there must have been a span of time between Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ah, there it is. And in this big gap. Something happened in this big gap. Leads some to think that... I'm not going to go into it. Leads some people to think that the earth was created full and everything... And, then the war with Satan took place during this time and the whole earth was destroyed again. That's why it says in verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. Verse 3, he starts over again. This is a form, theological terms, this is a form of eisegesis, not exegesis. Exegesis is a theological term that when we study scripture, 
we pull out of Scripture what it is saying. Eisegesis is what you think it says you put into Scripture. We don't want to do that. We do not want to do that. God created with order and purpose and design. When we talk about creation, it is always described throughout this chapter again and again and again. In a word that means day in Hebrew, yom. 24-hour period. And it is even defined as a 24-hour period. It gives us It gives us parameters. I want to compare first three days with the last three days. The first three days, verses four, or excuse me, verse, verses three through five, the first day, verse three through five, and the fourth day, verses 14 through 19, complement one another. So we have an explanation of creation in six days, and then utility or purpose. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Throughout this passage, throughout this whole chapter, every time he talks about day, it is the Hebrew term for yom, and is mostly often used in Hebrew scripture as day, a 24-hour period, and it is especially defined with limits, evening and morning, the first day, evening and morning, the second day, evening and morning, the third day, all the way through the chapter. So if God is telling us he did this in six 24-hour days, he did it in six 24-hour days. We have nothing else to stand on. If we do anything else with this, it is eisegesis, eisegetical. We're putting our own stuff, we're taking science and shoehorning into Scripture, and we must not do this. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and the morning was the first day. And now we'll move ahead to verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God said, And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. So in the first, on the first day, he sets in place a difference between light and day or he sets a place he arranges for his purpose a place to put the stars and the fourth day that's where he places them that's where we get the sun and the moon verse six i would like to compare the second day to the fifth day 
God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. It seems kind of clear he's doing something with water here. What is this expanse above and this expanse below? The waters on the earth and the clouds in the sky. That's what it's talking about. There is evidence in scripture that, t- that suggests very strongly that when this world was formed, that it very likely had, it's called the canopy theory. There were enough clouds to enclose the earth all around. They would filter, that would filter out the radiant sunlight that causes aging. Hence, people could live a little longer. Hence, the temperature around the world would be more temperate instead of extremes. But that's what it's talking about here. An expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, the water that was on the earth, the rivers and the seas, and the skies above. Now, let's compare this to the fifth day, verse 20. Let the waters swarm with with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and with every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So on the second day he made the seas and the waters on the earth and he made the sky and the limits of the sky. And on the fifth day he fills the seas and rivers with fish and living creatures and the skies with with the birds. We're seeing creation and utility. Everything for a purpose. Everything in its place. Everything in order. Let me now compare the third day to the sixth day. Verse 9. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and the fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth was brought forth. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And now look at verse 24. And let's look at the sixth day. This third day, God has created the land and the vegetation, the plants, which we will discover in a few moments, that it was for food. 
And now he can, he's created, going to create living creatures. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. In verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, if you're going to believe evolutionary science, and I know you've all seen the evolutionary chart where there's this thing crawling out of the water and it evolves to an ape and then comes up to the white man. suggesting that the darker-skinned creatures or anthropoidal races creatures were inferior to the white man. Remember I said earlier Darwin was a racist. You need to, need to be very careful what they are teaching us because they are deceptive and they're going to get you. Those who say... I remember one of the reasons we left our former denomination was because they were allowing ministers in the denomination to teach this, this error, theistic evolution, denying scripture itself. If you, but it, here was the caveat. They said, you can teach theistic evolution or you can teach the gap theory, but somewhere in your confession, you have to Preacher, you have to personally admit and believe that a literal Adam existed and a literal Eve existed. And most of them say, okay, that's not a problem. All right, let's, let's think about this. They're believing that there was evolution, that somewhere along the line, man became human and Man, one of those humans became Adam, and one of those humans became Eve. So somewhere along the line where Scripture tells us again and again and again, when creatures were being made by God, brought into existence, it tells us again and again and again, each and every one of them reproduced after its kind. That doesn't happen in evolution because the kind is changing. So somewhere along the line, if you're going to believe in evolution and, and, and then confess that somewhere Adam appeared and somewhere Eve appeared, then you have to think this through. Somewhere an ape gave birth to a human man and somewhere else an ape gave birth to a human woman. That's the error that was being taught in, or allowed to be taught 
in our former denomination. And you should, oh, wait, there's, that's, that's not right. There are problems with that. So we see creation and utility. The first day God creates the heavens, light, and he separates light from darkness. The fourth day he creates the sun and the moon and the stars and fills the heavens. The second day he, exp- he creates the seas on the, on the earth. And the fifth day he creates water creatures and birds. And the third day he creates the dry land and the vegetation, and the sixth day he creates the living creatures and mankind to inhabit the dry land. So everything in creation has utility, it has a purpose, it is done in order, it is done for a reason. And then there is harmony. Verse 29 God said, behold, he's saying this to the man. Behold, I give you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of this all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Those of you who take any ridicule for being vegetarian, here's your, here's your proof text. We were designed that way. Well, why do we eat meat today? Well, we eat meat today because we have to remind ourselves, and we've even forgotten that, that in order for us to live, something's got to die. It's as plain as that. And we have in this text a promise in other texts, which are future to this time, that tell us of a coming day when all of this will be returned, restored. In Isaiah 11, the Bible tells us righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, talking about the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, that will restore all of this, make everything new, and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." What was lost in the Garden of Eden will be restored one day. I tried several years ago. My wife is still more faithful to it than I am. I tried several years ago to try a vegetarian diet. I can't say that it didn't make me miserable. I just didn't adjust well to it. And I, I, I'm still more plant-based than I was 10 years ago. But every now and then, I just have to have a rib or a steak 
or a piece of barbecued chicken. Forgive me. But we were meant to be that way. Even the beasts were meant to be that way. So we have creation, we have utility, purpose, and order, and we have harmony. It was there in the beginning. We have a promise of it coming again in the future. When the angel shows us the river of life and the water, once we get into heaven, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And the servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be the light. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. I don't know where you are in this understanding or belief in Genesis 1, how we created, how we came to be. If you're a theistic evolution or gap theory evolutionist or, or whatever, you might ask, does it really make any difference? Or did we simply come from creek slime and, are we, and we're going to grave dust? Everything was made for his glory. Everything was made for his purpose, even you. Scripture tells us that these things are clearly seen, but so many people don't see it. Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely the internal, his internal power, eternal power, and the divine nature have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. People who look, who, who look at this world and refuse to believe how it came to be, refuse to believe, there's enough evidence there to tell us that God exists. They refuse to accept it. So I need to ask you as we close, what will you do, Christian? You might say, well, can't I follow science and still be a Christian? Well, be careful what you are saying. Be careful what you are thinking. Returning back to Revelation chapter 22, the Bible said, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the book. In the last week we were in Revelation, we tied those to Proverbs and Deuteronomy, saying, do not add to this book, Proverbs 30, verse 6, do not add to, this, to his words, lest he rebuke you and, be, and you be found a liar. And Deuteronomy 4, 2 said, you shall not add to the word that I command you, 
nor take it from you that you may keep commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So Revelation is tied to the Old Testament in this admonition. Do not remove anything that I teach you. Do not add to anything that I teach you. But if you're going to believe evolutionary science, air quotes, and not what scripture tells us, what are you doing as a professing believer? You're adding stuff to scripture and you're refusing to believe what God has given us. So you tell me, can I be a good Christian and still believe in science? We need to accept by faith the word of God and what it teaches us because it is valuable to our souls, to our hearts, and to our minds, and to our lives. Let us pray. Lord in heaven, thank you for this word and its truth and its power and help us to trust you, Lord. Help us to rejoice in what you have done for us. We ask this humbly in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.